0: Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This time on Vet Story, we salute the incredible history and amazing men and women of the United States Coast Guard.
1: Coast Guard uh, personnel people that uh, have rescued lives since 1790 or uh, at least back to the 1800s are the ones that generally tend to go into a storm when everybody else is running away it was just it was horrible the, the sea conditions were terrible it looks like you're um,
2: going over top of mountains and going back down into the valleys and and this was a single
1: screw ship so many other uh, Coast Guard men and women who have gone in harm's way, some of them never to return, just to save the lives of others. So they deployed uh, behind Japanese lines and then all of a sudden realized uh, the Marines had been ambushed.
2: Back in the 80s, our equipment and our technology wasn't as good as what the smugglers had. They would just blow right by us.
1: And as a rearguard action, Monroe actually covered the, uh, the last boats as they were leaving with machine gun fire from his landing craft. When you have the intimidation of a
2: large cutter coming alongside and you have a helicopter and they're shooting your engine block out.
1: There was a quote back in the day when uh, they, they used these surf boats, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. It's pretty much game over once that happens.
0: All right, on the phone with me for the podcast today is a man that has probably forgot more about the Coast Guard than most people will ever know, a Coast Guard historian, Dr. William Thiessen. Thank you for joining us on Vet Story.
1: My pleasure, sir.
0: You know what? I was uh, really really impressed and just flat out blown away that I didn't know more about the Coast Guard as I did research for our interview. And as we approach their 229th birthday, I wanted you to share with me today uh, a little bit about a few of the legends of the Coast Guard and the stories behind them, beginning with what I might maybe call a founding father of the Coast Guard, Joshua James.
1: Certainly, yes, Joshua James uh, was probably one of the uh, uh, most bemettled life-saving uh, service hero of, uh, of history, actually. Uh, he served uh, until his death, actually. He died while he was uh, on the job, and uh, he was responsible for saving hundreds of lives um, out of his station at Hull in Massachusetts. And uh, because of his incredible record of saving lives, uh, the services actually honored him with the namesake status of one of its new national security cutters. But he was probably the most famous of all of the uh, lifesavers in the history of the uh, Lifesaving Service, which was an ancestor agency of the Coast Guard, so hence the Coast Guard as well.
0: Getting to the 1800s then, when Joshua James was up there on the Cape, a Massachusetts there and uh looking at the seas I don't know if he would have had the accent or not um, if they <laughs> pronounced <Likely>. the, <laughs> I'm If sure. they had the ahs back then but he was <laughs> guiding the guiding the poets and the, the waters around Boston mm-hmm. and he had a really interesting start to his inspiration for saving lives um share with me that a young boy on the beach watching his mother
1: yeah it's, it's really a sad story that uh, his uh, family was involved in in this. Uh, aspect of the uh, history of the service, but uh, having uh, lost family members, uh, Joshua James was motivated to to become the uh, the rescuer that he was, and he devoted the rest of his life to uh, saving those who were imperiled on the oceans, and that occurred frequently there in his home location, because many of the ships that were destined for Boston passed by his uh, life-saving station, so... With foul weather of various kinds, uh, he and his crew would go out and uh, save lives frequently every year. So uh, he had established quite a record from the Hull Station.
0: Yeah, and specifically going from the moment I was referring to there where, uh, sadly, his mother perished, uh, drowning off the coast. And and, and as a young boy, he he saw that. He then dedicated his life to life-saving. By his early 20s, he'd already saved many people and was awarded a medal. Talk to me about that era of his life.
1: Well, at that time in his life, uh, he actually was a member of the Massachusetts Humane Society, which was uh, a, a kind of a precursor to the life-saving service. And what was happening was that um, more and more immigrants were coming to the United States on ships of less than seaworthy condition. Uh, as you're probably well aware, Europeans were Locking to the U.S. uh, in the early 1800s all the way up through uh, the Civil War, and many of these ships, uh, when they got to the shoreline, were unable to to actually navigate through the waters without going aground, so hundreds were losing their lives on American seashores. So as a result, lifesavers like uh, Joshua James had a whole lot of business. And eventually Congress decided to step in because too many lives were being lost, and the newspapers were showing on their front pages all of the carnage that was taking place. So as a result, uh, people like Joshua James and others who were in life-saving service starting in the 1870s and, and on uh, became great heroes and uh, receiving the gold life-saving medal just like Joshua James did, many of them down in North Carolina, for example. Hmm. became big heroes um, all the way up to Massachusetts. So gold life-saving medals were doled out uh, pretty frequently just because there were so many great heroic rescues that took place. And they continue on today, of course, uh, with the modern Coast Guard.
0: Hmm. Now he goes down in Coast Guard history as attending to one of the biggest rescues and really making a huge impact with with one specific mission. Talk to me about the Great Storm
1: uh, in the 1880s. So he took. He was uh, involved with uh, actually numerous rescues, I believe, during that storm. Uh, and in fact, it was almost an exhausting time because during this uh, particular storm, it was practically one wreck after another that took place. And so he was actually uh, manning the, uh, the, the uh, tiller to this uh, surfboat on a almost uh, throughout the uh, evening and into the daylight hours, trying to rescue shipwrecked and uh, victims of shipwrecks uh, from multiple wreck sites, so he must have been just simply running on adrenaline for many, many hours before uh, finally completing all of the rescue. Certainly, he was honored uh, greatly for his efforts in this respect, um, receiving the medals he deserved, and uh, to be honest with you, he served not only in that rescue, but he continued on into his 70s, and he died just uh, stepping off a uh, surfboat, boat. Uh, and I think the last term he said was the tide is ebbing and stepped off a surfboat after a practice run and, and uh, passed out and died right there on the, uh, on the beach. So his whole life was dedicated to saving the lives of others uh, up until his final breath. Mm,
0: very poetic as if to say the tide is ebbing in his final breath, as if like maybe saying he's also going out with the tide. Precisely. Wow, wonderful. Yeah. Share with me totals. You know, I've, I've heard folklore say that he's the man that saved a thousand souls.
1: Yeah, I believe the, the figure is, is probably somewhere between 500 and 1,000. Uh, I'm not sure that they ever have uh, completely totaled up the uh, statistics for his record. Um, but certainly there are uh, hundreds and hundreds of victims that owed their lives to him. And, of course, that equates to probably hundreds of thousands of descendants that are alive today because of his uh, rescue efforts. And uh, he's, like I said, he's, he was probably the best known. Uh, in fact, I'm sure he was the best known of uh, our heroic lifesavers. But uh, not to discount the efforts of so many other uh, Coast Guard men and women who have gone in harm's way, some of them never to return, just to save the lives of others. And uh, probably should not uh, forget those who have have, uh, tried to uh, help out those who are in peril on the high seas or in the surf to uh, to try to save their lives.
0: Indeed. And it's something I've been lucky enough to witness. Uh, Of course, I was in the Navy and I recall being somewhere in the northeast. I mean, I, I believe we were slated to be near Halifax, Nova Scotia, but I suppose we were closer to the states. But uh, huge seas coming up, and I'm on a massive aircraft carrier, so I'm looking down at the open ocean and seeing what I have never forgotten, uh, the size waves, just the chasms that opened up in the ocean. And, I mean, literally, it looked like 10-story buildings. Mm -hmm. I mean, just so huge. And, of course, we got a call that there was a ship in distress and uh, dispatched our SAR rescue swimmers, and I believe it was a, a joint operation with the Coast Guard who actually went in And save the people. I've never forgotten what that must be like to take a helicopter and drop in to those angry seas facing huge waves and be able to successfully pull someone out and get him back up to the chopper. But when I think about Joshua James, I think about doing this. Uh, you know, uh, several hundred yards offshore, but without any technology. W- what was he using? You say surf boats. Uh, what would have the chore or the task been like in the 1800s to get a ship or to rescue victims that had run aground on a sandbar or something like that?
1: Uh, so one thing I'd like to point out before I get started on that is that uh, Coast Guard uh, personnel, people that uh, have rescued lives since 1790 or uh, at least back to the 1800s, are the ones that generally tend to go into a storm when everybody else is running away and that's the case today as well uh coast guard personnel risk their lives they go in harm's way to save others when it usually people are trying to get out of the storm they're going into it <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah that's precisely what james was doing when he was saving these lives but he would be on board uh, typically a surf boat which was launched into the uh, the raging and roiling surf uh, on the beach. Uh, and it was an ore-powered boat at the time. They had no uh, motors uh, involved. It was all strictly uh, by hand and and, uh, and sheer grit and muscle. A lot of times the surf, when they were launching into uh, the surf, would be so horrendous that these boats, which measured in length probably 20 feet or or slightly longer, would be launched up in the air and back to the beach, and they'd have to repeat the effort over and over again until they finally could get it to, uh, to go through the surf. So this was no uh, easy feat to try to launch these boats into the water. Certainly they were a little bit safer after they got gotten out of the surf line because the breakers wouldn't be flipping the boat over. But it was very harrowing, uh, and in fact, uh, there was a quote back in the day when uh, they used these surf boats that uh, one of the keepers mentioned to a crew member is that you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. And that used to be the unofficial motto. Today it's not used because uh, today we have much safer uh, technology. But back in those days, it was all uh, oars manned by human muscle, and uh, just the only uh, limit on your speed is how fast you can paddle that surf boat out to uh, to the shipwreck.
0: Mm, amazing and how many crew on one of those surf boats
1: uh there were at least six but typically eight and you also have a uh a steersman in the uh in the aft and he is generally the keeper uh who's in charge of the uh the boat and he would maneuver the boat and generally he was the most experienced of the uh crew members on board so he knew how to handle a boat. But, of course, the uh, people that were the surfmen on board that were handling the oars were also expert uh, watermen and knew how to maneuver uh, boats in the surf. And that's something that the Coast Guard's been known for throughout its history is small craft handling uh, boats in shallow water and in surf. And that's in wartime and peacetime, actually.
0: Right on. And of course, uh, he continued to serve, was a keeper uh, up until his 70s. And like you'd mentioned, yep. uh, dedicated life to the sea. And even even after being, what, 60, 70 years old, uh, mm-hmm. took his last breath after a training mission, coming aground, coming ashore on the beach yep. and spoke the faithful words, the tide is ebbing. Certainly a legend. Uh, Fast forward a few years, of course, into uh, the 1900s, and we are uh, looking at another incredible sacrifice, another incredible Coast Guard hero, and that is a signalman, uh, Douglas Monroe. Share with me the story of his life and uh, why he's recognized as one of the heroes of Guadalcanal.
1: So uh, just uh, a uh, preliminary here, the Guadalcanal was one of the most honored uh, Coast Guard uh, military operations in its history, and there were many, many Coast Guardsmen who were honored with uh, Silver Stars, Navy Crosses, uh, Purple Hearts, all the rest, Navy Commendations. But uh, Douglas Monroe stands out as uh, the uh, highest uh, honored uh, man in that uh, campaign, Coast Guardsman. He started out as a a radio man in the late 1930s, uh, enlisted prior to World War II, but um, rose through the ranks really quickly. He went from uh, basically your seaman recruit to a uh, first class in just a few years. So it's really a uh, uh, a recognition of the leadership that he provided for others. He was really a uh, uh, embodiment of the Coast Guard's core values, which are honor, respect, and devotion to duty. He really was uh, lived up to those perhaps more than any other uh, in his uh, unit. Anyway, he was assigned to the uh, landings in um, Guadalcanal. And uh, what the uh, Coast Guard tended to do at Guadalcanal was to operate small craft to help the Marines. They would serve side-by-side, ensuring that uh, the Marines had uh, reconnaissance behind enemy lines using boats. Hmm. Uh, They would also deploy the Marines in uh, amphibious landings, but they'd also... Retrieve the Marines should they uh, uh, get in trouble, and so during one particular operation uh, at Point Cruz, which is on the shoreline in Guadalcanal, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Chesty Puller, but he's a pretty famous uh, Marine. Oh yes, sir. So went on to become a Marine general. Well, it was his regiment that uh, went behind enemy lines. They were d- deployed on uh, watercraft that were operated by the Coast Guard, and um, even though he was a signalman. Uh, Doug Monroe was such a great leader, he was also uh, in charge of the flotilla that deployed uh, Puller's Regiment on the shoreline. So they deployed uh, uh, Puller's Regiment uh, be- behind Japanese lines and then all of a sudden realized uh, the Marines had been ambushed and were, being, were expected by the Japanese. As a result, they were incurring heavy casualties, mm. radioed to their command that they needed to be uh, retrieved, and so uh, Signalman uh, Monroe immediately volunteered to lead that flotilla back to retrieve them, which he did successfully, uh, retrieving all of the uh, Marines, including the wounded, off the beaches. And as a rearguard action, Monroe actually covered the, uh, the last boats as they were leaving with uh, machine gun fire from his landing craft. And he was uh, killed by sniper fire uh, as he was doing that. So he was actually recommended for the Medal of Honor by uh, the Marines for his heroic efforts there. And it was uh, later bestowed on him posthumously to his, his family, the Monroe family.
0: That's amazing. So he delivers the Marines to make the strike... Well, first, let me back up. They're in the Pacific theater, which is Correct. which is the first thing I was surprised at. You know, I always thought the Navy and the Marines have this kind of symbiotic relationship where we travel and we take them everywhere they need to go. Uh, World War II, we we actually brought the Coast Guard cutters with us all the way to the far islands of the Pacific to begin the campaign, which would eventually turn the tide of World War II.
1: You have to remember that the Coast Guard had a quarter million personnel that served in World War II operating vessels and whatnot. I mentioned before that the Coast Guard's expertise is small craft surf operations and that sort of thing. So during 1942 and 43. Many of the landing craft and small craft that were operated uh, for the Navy were actually operated by Coast Guard personnel.
0: Hmm. Okay, okay. All right, so that sort of puts it into perspective. But then again, he's taking the Marines to Guadalcanal, which was one of the first battles of the Pacific, right? I mean, that was on our march through the islands to get us closer to Japan.
1: Well, Uh, you have to remember that is the first amphibious operation uh, conducted by the U.S. in World War II. It was really a— Oh, it was the first. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. It was really a laboratory for— Experimenting on different uh, landings and, and uh, amphibious operations leading up to other more. Well, Guadalcanal was quite famous, but other ones uh, like D Day became perhaps even more famous. But it was Guadalcanal that started it all.
0: So they were testing our abilities to take a beach, testing our abilities to take an island via the surf. And, of course, Coast Guard's there. Uh, He brings the Marines to the island. And then when you say uh, as they required extraction, he goes back, he volunteers for that mission. Um, At the final moment where he really, really showed just this incredible courage, he was was he manning the boat that was taking the Marines away or did he surrender him or give up himself by taking a position in another boat with a 50 cal and just began firing at the enemies on the beach in order to give fire for the marines to get out
1: well uh it kind of requires a little bit of understanding of what a higgins boat is to talk about that because the earliest landing crafts in world war ii everybody who knows anything about the war knows that landing craft basically had an armored ramp that lowered in the front of it so that uh They could deploy troops and equipment.
0: Like the famous pictures of D-Day. Yeah, yeah, Precisely,
1: right. But the earliest uh, Higgins boats that were used for uh, amphibious operations did not have that ramp in the front. In in fact, what they really had were two dual uh, machine gun tubs that were mounted in front, and the troops, such as the Marines, were required to deploy off the side of the landing craft. So, Hmm. Go back to your history books and take a look at the earliest landing craft in 1942, they had the Higgins boats uh, with no bow ramp, but with two gun mounts in front. Well, what happened was that uh, when Monroe was leading this flotilla, uh, he and another uh, crew member were manning the uh, 30 caliber Lewis machine guns in front of the uh, Higgins boat. And when the uh, Marines were being uh, redeployed and taken off the beach, He, uh, with this machine uh, gun-equipped Higgins boat, was providing covering fire. So he was one of the last, his was one of the last landing craft to leave because they were basically a a floating uh, machine gun mount to uh, cover the retreat. And
0: just facing fire from the beach, facing enemy gunfire, he, he, rather than trying to turn and take the troops and get them out of there as quick as he could, decided to give up himself. And fire back. And that's, of course, when he made the ultimate sacrifice. Wow. Amazing. Uh, let's talk about another fighter. Uh, not necessarily a war fighter in combat per se, but a fighter for justice, a fighter for equal rights. Dr. Olivia Hooker plays an important part in Coast Guard history. Share with me her incredible story.
1: So, uh, Dr. Hooker, um, actually, uh, you have to go back before she actually became a, a, a spar, in the Coast Guard. She actually uh, lived in Tulsa during the Tulsa race riot. She was actually the last surviving person uh, when she passed away here just uh, last year of that tragic event in Oklahoma. Her family moved away from Oklahoma and moved to Ohio.
0: If I could real quick I'll just stop yep. you there and just just note yep. that yeah the race riots at Tulsa uh 1920s right. um were a period in time it's very dark in our history of and course. we don't hear much about it uh right. but it should be noted that that racial division was so large in the 20s sure. that at one point in time uh there was uh, some sort of some sort of crime that had happened an African American had been incarcerated and people had thought that the crime was so vicious that the whites of Tulsa turned on the blacks, went into uh, what was arguably a very successful part of Tulsa and just started looting and burning African Americans homes. And sure. Klansmen went into the neighborhoods and searched, you know, for yeah. African American citizens. And it was just a horrible incident where lives were lost Um yeah. Uh, Dr. Hooker, as a little girl, hid so that she could escape the persecution and escape these Klansmen. Mm-hmm. And eventually, as you would noted there's yeah, they moved to Ohio. And then, you know, she grew up with this kind of uh, experience, you know, deeply defining her personality and deeply defining who she was. Uh, share with me then, of course, how she gets involved with the military and the Coast Guard.
1: So she, uh, she finishes up a degree at the Ohio State University, and she gets a job as a teacher in uh, Columbus, and she just is teaching there for several years, um, and is really a um, almost in her middle age by the time World War II rolls around, she decides that she wants to do her part to serve uh, her country. And so she um, enlists in the, uh, the Coast Guard, and she is one of five African American women who enlist and become what they call SPARS, uh, which was the uh, Coast Guard's women's reserve, kind of like the WAX and the WAVES for Mm -hmm. um, the other services. And so she uh, trains and becomes a yeoman, and she processes the papers for all the personnel uh, associated with District 1 in Boston. And you have to remember that uh, up through World War II, the the military was segregated. And so um, African Americans, other minorities, were relegated to non-authority positions um, in, in the officer enlisted ranks. And it wasn't until the war that there were efforts to try to desegregate uh, the military. And the Coast Guard, of course, led those uh, efforts, uh, which ultimately resulted in uh, the desegregation of the military right after the war by Harry Truman. But, uh, so Olivia Hooker had to deal with uh, institutionalized segregation, Uh, But she succeeded becoming a uh, a, a yeoman, and uh, so she was responsible in large part for processing out a lot of the uh, service members coming back from uh, European theater, from uh, the war in the Pacific, and uh, a lot of these service members had stories to tell. She uh, indicated how much it really affected her to... uh, to help these uh, service members get back home and deal with PTSD and a lot of the issues that they had when they came back home. Yeah, which is
0: kind of uh, shown and really reflected in what she went on to do after becoming a member of the Coast Guard and an actual petty officer in the Coast Guard. She went on to get a Ph.D. in psychiatry and... I guess I would imagine uh, that was probably inspired and useful as she helped people deal with PTSD, although we didn't even call it that back then. But, you know, through using psychiatry and really achieving a Ph.D. at a time when hardly any African-Americans were even
1: allowed to be in college. Precisely. She was a trailblazer. Not not only was she the first African-American woman to don a Coast Guard uniform, but she also uh, really broke color barriers after the service in her, uh, her chosen field. She became a professor at, at uh, Furnham University, and she didn't retire until she was 87 years old. So she served not only her country, she served her community, uh, and she served her, her country uh, admirably, admirably and honorably. Again, I bring to your attention the core values of the Coast Guard, honor, respect, devotion to duty, and she lived up to those uh, in, in such a great way. She passed away at the age of 102 after doing so much to help out uh, her community and uh, and the, the people around her.
0: Hmm. You know, we love those trailblazing stories because even, even today, 2019, you know, we're still hearing about firsts in the military, uh, but to be one of the firsts is not only a testament to the great work of Dr. Hooker, but uh, how the Coast Guard was progressive in that respect Uh, decades Mm -hmm. before the rest of the services. So um, another great moment to be a coast. Uh, Dr. Teeson. man, I really appreciate going through the history of the Coast Guard with you. And I thank you very much. Just bravo, shipmate. Job well done.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
0: Now, as we just heard from the Coast Guard historian, Dr. Teeson, and we heard about the epic history and the all-stars of the Coast Guard, it dawned on me that there's a family friend that I happen to have that spent his entire career with the Coast Guard, retired Coast Guard Lieutenant Commander John Hartloff from North Carolina. He's on the phone with me now. And John, welcome.
2: Hey, Phil. How are you?
0: I'm good, man. I'm good. And you know what? I, I've been doing all this Coast Guard research. And as you know, I'm a Navy guy. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, we've always had what I considered kind of a seafaring rivalry. But man, am I impressed and just God love you for the amazing things that the Coast Guard has done since 1790.
2: Well, that's okay that you're Navy. My dad, he was retired Navy, and my father-in-law was retired Navy. And I've, my brother actually served in the Navy for four years. So, I, you know, the Navy and uh, the Coast Guard, we, we got a little rival, rivalry there, but we, <laughs> we tend to get along okay.
0: Well, I'd I like to think we're the smarter branches of the military because we chose to be stationed at the beach. And, uh, you know, you can't go wrong there. But (laughs) what I really love thinking about and hearing about are the real stories. And while I've heard them from the historical perspective from Dr. Thiessen, I wanted to get from you. Share with me just a moment that you might never forget when it comes to rescue missions.
2: Well, um, one rescue mission that comes to mind, um, when I was on my first cutter, I served on six different cutters. I did 16 years at sea. There was uh, one case that we had. We were uh, 200 miles off the coast of Montauk, New York, and uh, there was a, uh, a vessel trying to make the trip from New York to Bermuda, and their fuel tanks became contaminated, and we were called to go out there and get them, and it was a terrible gale blowing during that time. And we get a couple hundred miles, off, a couple hundred miles offshore, and seas are... 30 foot and we were just getting pounded out there and the the vessel was disabled we needed to get the people off it was too rough to get small boats in the water to go over and pick them up we ended up the next day calling helicopters out to pluck them off the boat our chief Bosa mate had gone over there broken his arm trying to help um, it was just it was horrible the the sea conditions were terrible um, so bad that they had to fly helicopters out to pull the people off and uh that was one that really sticks in my mind because it was probably some of the worst sea conditions i remember And this ship is only 205 feet long so you're just a speck out there when the sea conditions are like that yeah talk to me about
0: that a little bit i mean to me that sounds like a pretty big boat but of course having been in the navy i know ships you know are you know a thousand (laughs) feet long long. so um what what does a thirty foot sea look like to a two hundred and some foot
2: boat? Like <laughs> it looks like it looks like you're um, going over top of mountains and going back down into the valleys and and this was a single screw ship, you know it was a, a old navy fleet tug which was designed for, you know, tugging ships and boats and barges and we were using it, you know, as as a coast guard cutter. There's really we didn't have a lot back then. This was mm. early eighties. So it, it it looks like you're there's just mountains of water coming uh, towards you, and then you just slowly ride up over it and then back down. And And the folks that were on that little yacht that was trying to get to Bermuda, I felt really bad for them. They were just getting knocked all over the place.
0: So the yeah. movies kind of get some of it a little bit accurate when they show you going up the face of that thing, and you're almost expecting just to go completely backwards at some point. I mean, like you <laughs>
2: You know, you you keep your your nose into the seas, and and so you're riding the seas well. You don't want to get catching the waves broadside, that's for sure. And um, if you start getting breaking waves, it can get very dangerous. So you've got to be aware of that at all times. Amazing.
0: Now, not only were you life-saving, but you were life-saving in a different way through the law enforcement capacity. And I know oftentimes you guys are saving us uh, from dangers we don't even know about. But I'm talking, oh, yeah. you know, I'm talking about drugs. I'm talking about the coke and the smoke that's, you know, coming through the American ports. Mm-hmm. Um, it's responsible on a secondary level to a lot of lives lost due to street crime and due to, you know, all kinds of nastiness. I can only imagine how dangerous some of those runs are uh, when you encounter the, you know, the smugglers and the cartel guys. Uh, do you have any stories about drug interdiction when stuff almost went sideways or something that really <laughs> stands out in your memory as just being one hairy experience?
2: Well, from my perspective, being on the ships um, and doing it for so many years, like I said, back in the 80s, our, our equipment and our technology was, wasn't as good as what the smugglers had. They would just blow right by us in their go fast boats, and we couldn't catch them. And then finally, as we got better equipment, started carrying helicopters on board. The helicopters were armed with 50 cal snipers um we could launch a helicopter get alongside these these go fast boats that would be running between south america dominican republic uh you know all the caribbean countries there we could cut them off and they could effectively shoot their engine blocks out with a nice 50 cal round through the engine block and stop them dead in their tracks and we could get them um we also worked closely with the Navy. They had P3 Orion's up above search and force at all times and DEA, they worked closely with us um, doing all kinds of little secret things to to help us pin, pinpoint where these guys were and catch them.
0: Now, now when you went alongside though, like when you finally did get one or as the technology kept up and you know the war on drugs in the 80s ramped up, what was that moment like? I mean, you guys <laughs> you, you guys had to fear that any moment they could pop up out of below deck there out of the hull and they could well, just start shooting back at you guys, right? Because they didn't want to give up their coke. They didn't
2: want to give well, up their ship. Well, when you have the intimidation of a large cutter coming alongside and you have a helicopter and they're shooting your engine block out, it's pretty much game over once that happens. Um, now, I was a, a federal boarding officer for many years at a small boat station, Clearwater, in Florida, and I did a seven-year combined tour there. I did two different tours there. And um, that was a SAR station, but we did a lot of law enforcement. And um, you'd be surprised, you know, how the drugs close to home can get in into ports. And so we'd have to stop drugs from getting in into the U.S. close to home. A lot of that takes place and people don't realize it. But um, you're right. You know, we would do fishery patrols where you'd board fishing boats, and you you never knew who was on board. Um, but there's techniques when you when you go alongside and you board the vessel, and once you get on board, you find their weapons, you get the crew in one, one place on the boat, you get you ask them where their weapons are, you locate them, and then you basically remove them from where they're used to them being. You hide them so they're not a threat anymore. And when you come on with, you know, Four, five, six boarding officers—they're not going to mess around. Uh, mm. Most most times, by the time you get on board, they're uh, they, they're pretty compliant. There are times when they're not, but you know, it doesn't last long. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, no doubt, man, no doubt. Um, what's the most amount of drugs you've ever seen? Let's talk coke. What's the most amount that you've ever seen busted at once?
2: Oh gosh, you know I. I I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but I I will say this, over the years of doing it, each bust was bigger and bigger and bigger, and and what was really alarming was some of the more recent ones I did before I retired from the Coast Guard. um, There was heroin mixed in with the cocaine, like you'd, you'd get tons and tons of cocaine, and alongside that, there would be packages of heroin, which we hadn't seen before for many years, and Years ago, it was more marijuana than anything. But uh, you start seeing heroin coming in; that was really concerning. I remember that specifically. Um, but we would get extremely large busts. I mean, there, sometimes there was there were tankers that were carrying it on board. Uh, it's very hard to locate. Sometimes we I remember specifically we had a case off of uh, Ecuador. We were we went through the Panama Canal. We were patrolling down there, and we boarded a vessel, and there was unaccounted for space, and we were on that boat for three, four days, um, getting approval to access certain areas to confirm that the, the space was accounted for, and uh, we eventually did locate some drugs, um, hmm. but all those all those scenarios, you know, you're out there in the middle of the night, rough weather, it doesn't matter what time of day it is, you come across a vessel, you're going, and... Uh, it, it was <laughs> it was a very exciting job. You know, like I said, the Coast Guard is so small. You know, I was a machinery technician, but I, a collateral duty, I was a boarding officer. So not only did I have to do my regular duties, but in addition to that, uh, you know, standing my watches and, and everything, I had to be ready to be a boat engineer or or be a boarding officer or part of the, the boarding crew to. Uh, enforcing all federal laws and regs. It was, it was, mm. there's never a dull moment. I'll put it that way.
0: Did you ever find drugs in like a weird situation or did you ever find smugglers like doing like kind of undercover in a way you didn't expect? Like, I don't know, I, uh, a man and a woman and she's pregnant. Turns out her belly's, you know, a belly full of blow <laughs> or a stuffed no, animal. No, that had I, like- I
2: personally never ran into that. Um, there was, uh, there were scenarios where, There was one experience that I had where we ran into one of these uh, submarines that uh, Columbia was using, one of the Colombian cartels, and uh, we pulled into uh, Cartagena, Columbia, and they actually had the submarine there pulled out of the water, and we could look at it close up. And it's amazing what these guys will do, the risk that they'll take to get these drugs to the United States. uh, These things are just... It's a looks like a fiberglass tube with an end on each end of it and a snorkel so they can breathe. And they pack that thing full of drugs. And the risk they take is unbelievable.
0: Talk to me about uh, those things, because I know that we just saw the viral video that was out of the Coastie... <laughs> that jumps from the fast boat onto the top of it and is, like, banging on the hatch while this thing's speeding (laughs) through the water. I mean, one of the coolest, greatest moments I've seen since the television show, Miami Vice. Yeah, um, open up. I got to wonder, man, inside those, you've been up close and personal with one of those semi-submersibles. I mean, they're not full submarines because I know they don't go fully underwater. But right. The risk that the crew that the drug smugglers are taking—I mean, it's almost insane, right? Because couldn't they couldn't they die just well, trying to get from the island to Florida? I mean, just traveling thirty, forty miles in that thing—could they die just trying to make the trek?
2: It's always dangerous at sea; that anything could go wrong. And you know, these are home-built submarines. At that, and the way I understand it is. They would build them. Most of these were built in Colombia. They build them back in the jungle up a river where they can't be seen. And some of the folks that are bringing the drugs over are forced to do it. And, you know, it's do it or die. So that's why they take the risk. And, you know, that explains that part of it. But um, crossing the Caribbean Ocean in a little fiberglass tube. I, you know, it's just crazy, but, but like I said, if somebody puts a gun to your head and says, look, you're going to take this across or your family's going to die, then
0: yeah, no, no, no doubt. It's a third world country and it's a total mess down there and it's, it's horrible, you know, it's a never ending problem. I don't think the war on drugs is ever really going to be over, um, it I just guess changes. I, I guess what I was getting at is like, what do they do with the exhaust? You're in a tube with a, with an outboard motor. I mean, what the they hell do they-,
2: they just have like a snorkel going out? You know, that carries the exhaust out. Um, you know, it, it's just it's real primitive. It's real crude. Um, I'm sure it's got to be horrible conditions inside of this thing. And like I said, the Caribbean Ocean is a pretty big, pretty big uh, area to to cover. On a ship, and I just cannot imagine, you know, trying to tr- cross the Caribbean Sea with something like that. It's just
0: How crazy. many days would it take, do you think, to get from Columbia to Florida in one of those things?
2: I would say at least five, six days, at least. Holy cow. And now, and, that, and they're not necessarily going to Florida. Uh, a lot of times they'll, they'll leave, and there may be a vessel that meets them halfway across to refuel them. Uh, that happens a lot with these go fast boats. Mm. They'll meet them partially, you know. And we've come across those boats, and they're they got all these drums of fuel, and they're saying that, they're telling us that they're out there fishing. When you ask them what they're doing, and it's you know, one guy with a fishing pole, and you're like, you're all the way out here in the middle of the ocean, and
0: <laughs> and you got you got two hundred <laughs> gallons of fuel, and you had one fishing pole.
2: Yeah. So and <laughs> but a lot of a lot of times they're just trying to get it from point A to point B, and then it hits another vessel, and it goes from there to another one. You know, uh, and they're they're uh, very creative. You know, whatever whatever they end up getting caught with, they shift to something else. Um, so, I mean, I guess the, the sad thing is, there's such a demand in our country; they'll do anything to get it over there. Yeah, and that's really what we need to stop—is the demand for it.
0: Yeah, no doubt, no doubt there. Um, just on a final note. A lot of us vacation down there. Or we go on cruises, or we travel to the Caribbean. We go to the Bahamas. As I look out over the Caribbean from my hotel room balcony, or from the sh- from the cruise ship I'm on, or or from the beach there, and as I look out over that great ocean, just how many boats are carrying drugs? Do you think? I mean, like you've you've been out there. Is it? a huge percentage of the ship traffic out there or the boat traffic is up to no good. I mean, are we, no,
2: no, no, it's, it's not, it's not a huge percentage. Um, and it's very, it's very orchestrated when they, when it is being done. Um, but no, I mean, the, the amount of vessels that are out there all the time, um, doing regular merchant type work in comparison to the, the folks that are running drugs is uh you know it it, there's a huge disparity between the two Hmm. i would say it's a small a pretty small portion of the of the vessels out there that you're going to see if you're out there on a cruise ship but you never know i mean you never know you're going to come across you guys
0: are the ones that can find the needle in the haystack and i think that that's why i wanted to ask the question is just just show yeah how difficult of a mission it is how dedicated the it sailors is. are that do this and just it's how it's. and just, and just how much and just how much ass the coast guard kicks man i really appreciate it john you know what we've never shared this although our families have known each other for years um but i just wanted to say man thank you so much man for the honor commitment and um selfless dedication that you guys have shown over your entire career and and for that matter for 229 years now uh yeah <laughs> since you guys have been the u.s revenue cutter service and uh, the u.s life saving service man
2: go coasties That's it. That's
0: it. Semper Paratus, baby. Semper Paratus. Yeah, leave me with that. What is the motto and what does it stand for?
2: Always ready. Always ready.
0: Awesome, brother. (laughs) Hey, man, really appreciate you, Commander. Thank you for your time.
2: No problem. Thanks Thanks a lot for the call.